save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. And good morning. This is Ellie Weiss, and you're listening to Our Wild World. And uh, the news these days right now is Zimbabwe and uh, Mugabe has resigned. So a lot of us are looking to understand better what this means and the the good and the bad and the ugly of what could be happening and what the future holds for Zimbabwe and with an understanding that things don't change overnight and uh, trying to figure out, oh, where is this going to go? So on that vein today, my guest is Damien Mander with the International Anti-Poaching Foundation uh, doing rhino conservation in Mozambique and now he's moved uh, back to Zimbabwe. So he's He's there on the ground seeing what's going on. So welcome back, Damien. Ali, very good to hear your voice again, mate. How are you doing? I'm doing well. You know, it, it took a year or so to find my footing again this year because so much yeah. craziness happened around the world. And it was kind of hard on the soul and the heart. But, um, you know, the world is still there. We haven't lost it. There is life still beyond planning. Trump. So, um you know, working on finding those positive things that are going on that we need to keep us going because I'm not giving okay. up. Good. Me either. <laughs> <laughs> so tell, uh, us yeah. what, tell us what's going on. Uh, it's been uh, quite an exciting couple of weeks here in, in Zimbabwe. Uh, a few uh, bit of um, political maneuvering uh, followed by waking up to, to tanks rolling into uh, Harare and our newsreader wearing the outfit of a general, which uh, you don't see too often. And um, yeah, listening to the words come out of his mouth, it was, uh, you know, I would say, a cause for, for optimism, uh, which in a political landscape here in Zimbabwe is not a very uh, very common thing. So we're here now. The new president, uh, Emerson Manangagwa, has been sworn in today uh, in Harare as the interim president. Uh, we're still waiting to, to get confirmation on when elections are going to go. And um, yeah, we sit down and, and we wait, but uh, it's it's a change. A change is as good as a holiday. It's a new chapter in, in, in Zimbabwe. And if, if nothing else, uh, to go on other than the optimism of the people, then there is a, a very happy feeling here. So, uh, you know, we, we still don't have any, any set roadmap on the way forward, but, but people are positive, and I think that that's the first step. Well, that's, you know, some very huge changes. So Mugabe finally resigned after 37 years in power and yeah. unwilling to give it up. And um, yeah. so th- would you call it a coup, a peaceful coup? Yeah, uh, it's 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 the coup you have when you're not having a coup. But, uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, I don't know if we want to get into some of the background of this. I know there's got to be several other international players that were involved, or guidance, or something behind the scenes. Can we get into any of that? And yeah, go for it. I mean. Yeah, look, it's you know not 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 to dance around the subject. It's it's always been something I've tried to keep away from. You know, it has played a significant role uh, in how we've had to operate here, and and indeed myself. You know, my you know I was kicked out of this country, uh, accused of espionage. Well, actually, I was out of the country at the time when the when the charge was levelled and uh, asked to come back and stand trial uh, against espionage because of the the level of paranoia here against uh, people doing this type of work. I mean, it's unfortunate that rangers need the type of training they do, but uh, you know, certain people have to deliver that training, and and we were doing that, and the government was threatened, or the government at the time was threatened by that, to a point where uh, you know I'd invested pretty much all of my life savings in the country, and then um, uh, you know told told that if you do come back, you're going to stand trial, and uh, you know that was that was a, that's what pushed us out into other places around the continent. 
registered in other countries, came and registered in the States and actually turned us into a, uh, a, a truly international organization as, as opposed to one focused here uh, in Zimbabwe. But, you know, they were the challenges we faced and I'm not regretful for, for, for or resentful for having them, um, but we're stronger having, having gone through it. And uh, here we are now. Um, we are at the, the, the beginning of a, a new era in this country and it, it uh, and I'm very confident that there is going to be, well, there has been a lot of people sitting on the sidelines waiting to get involved with Zimbabwe once uh, once the old man was gone. And he's gone now and it's not just people overseas, it's it's people here. Parliament was dancing when, when the, the letter was read out for his reg- resignation. People were dancing in the streets, they were crying, they were hugging, they were rejoicing. People in America, you've had six presidents uh, in the time that, that Mugabe has ruled here, 37 years. Uh, he took over a couple of months after I was born. So the people here haven't known anything else uh, for the for the most part. And uh, you know, particularly the, the rangers and the age group we're working with, uh, they haven't known anything else other than this repressive state of, uh, of uh, our continuous economic and social decline. And uh, I'll give I'll give Zimbabweans one thing: they are a resilient people, and they are one of the I don't know, just one of the nicest, kindest uh, bunches of people I've met on the planet in in one of the most beautiful and safest countries. That is such a huge shift. I through Facebook I was watching um, various posts of a lot of people that were young or had just been born or were like eight years old when Mugabe came to power. People like Rory Young and you and so many others, Jane High, that are um, celebrating in the streets. This It reminds me um, very much of when Moy was president in Kenya, although he was not yeah. a Mugabe, but no one could speak. It's not that people didn't want to speak out or didn't want a change or take actions they were literally fearful for their lives you couldn't talk out loud about any of this so um that sense of relief and lifting of that weight has got to be just a tremendous spiritual uh experience to see people I don't even know how to put it into words to see people dancing in the streets and with yeah. that positive energy to see what can happen. So what what do yeah. you think with this interim government? Uh, can you tell us a little bit out about the players? Is this going to be a wolf in sheep's closing or do you think there's – I know it's going to take time. It doesn't happen overnight. Mm. And the, as you said, there's no plan right now. But there's mm. – in the background while Mugabe was in power, there were a lot of mm. opposition forces that were gaining strength and gaining backers and um, working to implement a plan when, if and when Mugabe stepped down. So yeah. the interim president he, president, he was kicked out a few weeks back, right, by Mugabe? Correct. Yeah, uh, Mugabe led by what they called the, the G, uh, G40 uh, faction of government uh, uh, with uh, the likes of, of Grace Mugabe, um, the first lady, and uh, a bunch of other players that were shifting uh, to take control of Zanu PF, uh, taking advantage of of Mugabe, who you know he's, he's 90, 93 or ninety four at the moment, quite frail, uh, obviously unable to to um, control what was a, a, a I'll say a runaway bride. Uh, she was um, out of control and and trying to take over government. She wanted to she wanted to be the president of Zimbabwe, and there were people here watching that unfold and. I think the the nation, which has been drilled into into silence and not speaking out politically on on the most part, um, you were sitting back and watching this happen uh, uh, because they know what 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 the alternative can be if they speak out. And uh, I think um, yeah, the army the army, for what it's worth, stepped in and, and neutralised the situation very quickly uh, and very peacefully. And uh, I think that's what people in this country are most grateful for: is that there has been a change of government, and uh, hardly a hardly a drop of blood spilt. Um, you know, but despite all the all the rejoicing in the in the streets and the singing and dancing, there's still a deep layer of scar tissue that's left uh, 
left underneath the, the, the footsteps there, uh, which is going to take a lot of time for this country to heal and move forward. But, uh, you know, it has to start somewhere, and I think that, that somewhere is this week. Well, that's, that's amazing. I mean, re- reconciliation is not an easy thing. We can look to Rwanda. We can look to Uganda. And um, we can look to Angola. And we can look to South Africa. Um, yeah. You know, from apartheid to a new world. So what we're witnessing right now, people, in history is that paradigm shift. And we're witnessing it everywhere. Um, and this is, to me, feels like one of the first really positive tipping points that went in a direction that we've all been holding our breath for. So what are some of us, you know, so it's going to take patience and it's going to take time. So what do you think, just you and me talking here, what do you think are some of the um, ideas or plans and or directions to keep the, the positive momentum flowing and not move into a breakdown of We've got to coexist. Um, we've got to understand our resources. We've got to protect them, and how to make our government work for us. Well, I think uh, you know the, what you just said before is 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 the first major milestone, and that's reconciliation and forgiveness, and and understanding that there has been a lot of shit in the past. But if we're going to move forward, then we need to we need to we need to work through that, and then um, build a build a country that that the international community is confident in investing into. And I think listening to uh, uh, President Manangagwa's uh, speech today, he's definitely driving towards um, not only unity within the country, but but uh, opening our arms uh, to, um, uh, to to other countries around the world that, you know, Zimbabwe has uh, historically been shut off from uh, or from, from accepting aid from or, or from working together. With um, look, I think uh, we you know the, the how the cabinet is uh, is uh, announced and who's in that cabinet and uh, what their history is will definitely speak volumes for the intentions of this incoming government and uh, or this incoming president and uh, and then we move towards elections and you know it's it's going to be. Uh, it's going to be, I think, um, a positive time as we head towards these these elections. But it's also going to be a time with a, a healthy degree of, of skepticism, uh, which uh, you know I think you've got it. You've got to. You can't go in. You can't just go forward blindly. And uh, you know I think the true investment that uh, the international community will put into this country will come once those elections have happened. Uh, this is a stepping stone towards that. And uh, we can only hope uh, and monitor uh, the situation going forward. Well, it's exciting times. It's kind of anxious times. It's a little nerve-wracking. But, you know, there's so many amazing people, uh, people like you. And I'm not trying to, to minimize this at all by using sort of inadequate words that have been working diligently behind the scenes all along to stay on top of things and to um, help guide forward uh, viewpoints and and channels and pathways once this particular incident, Mugabe stepping down, Grace out, could take place. So this really is the birth of a nation happening. Yeah, well, actually, Grace has refused to stand down as the First Lady. I thought she, uh, I thought she would had left. I thought she was um, either. <laughs> She's gone. I don't know where she's be under house arrest or. But um, yeah, I think she's still under house arrest. But uh, that's a bit of a joke running around here uh, in Zimbabwe. Gucci Grace, the woman that uh, you know monitored the country in, in extreme poverty, but would go and set. Uh, record spending sprees at Harrods and catching many first-class flights around the world, bringing in Rolls Royces, buying mansions all around the place. So, uh, yeah, she's exploited this country enough. Uh, she can go home with, to where she came from, which is Benoni in South Africa. Wow. And there's a lot of uh, links, folks, on uh, the Internet that you can find plenty of resources. There is an article 
literally titled um, Grace Mugabe, the rags, Riches to Rags or Rags to Riches story. And um, yeah. so she's been quite a force in Zimbabwe. And as Damien just said, she's not going to go peacefully into the night. So um, we have some work to do there yet. And uh, um, we, we know we have some great people on the ground. And the Zimbabweans are looking forward to a... Um, a new life it's difficult it's coming from um similar to let's say somalia generations of people that have known nothing but mugabe and let's call it a, a you know a dictator with some terror the inability to not terrorism but the inability to secure their livelihoods watching the their country get dismantled and um, not having a, a place to be represented by. And Zimbabwe is a very wealthy, uh, resource-rich country, and watching that get yeah. um, extracted without anybody benefiting. So here's hoping that will shift as well. So right now, we need to take a short break. So um, check out IAPF.org on the internet and check out Damien Mander, Facebook, Our Wild World and Wild Eyes Foundation. And stick with us. We'll be right back because we've got a lot to talk about what Damien is working on with IAPF and uh, a little bit more about what the future holds. So we'll be right back. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And here we are back again. My guest today is Damien Mander. And uh, we were talking about how things are changing in Zimbabwe. And uh, we ended on a note about Grace Mugabe perhaps maybe not doing what she should be doing right now. But the general message is one of hope right now. And um, Damien, speaking of hope, you've got a great new project that you've been working on for a while. Why don't you tell us about that? Akashinga. Yeah, thanks, Ali. Um, yeah, we started about five months ago, and uh, it employs. What, what, so what, what we've done is we've looked at looked at hunting areas. Now, hunting as a, as a 
as an industry is diminishing and that's because of uh, all the, the work that's been done around the world in uh, regards to activism and making tougher uh, laws around the importation uh, and export of, of trophies, um, banning the, uh, the use of you know, a number of airlines uh, transporting trophies. It's just becoming harder and harder to hunt. And I think, look, this, this, this particularly the millennial generation, is, which has is, um, grown up with social media, and they get a first-hand look without having to come to Africa of what is actually involved with hunting because it's there's a lot of activism that is pushed through through social media. And I just think this generation is over uh, getting on an aeroplane fly, and flying to the other side of the world so they can shoot something in the face and hang it above their mantelpiece. And uh, the, the, the downside of that is, if there is a downside, is that uh, many of these areas had relied on hunting as, as a source of income. Uh, as opposed to no source of income and, and large tracts of land across the continent have been set aside for for trophy hunting. Uh, in Zimbabwe, 20% of the, the country is set aside, 20 million acres uh, set aside for trophy hunting and across participating uh, countries in Africa, you're looking uh, at around one-sixth of their land mass. Collectively, it's it's just under 6 million, uh, sorry, 7 million uh square kilometres across the continent, about the same size as France. So it's a, a considerable chunk of land set aside for uh, what is a, a dying pastime now as hunting is no, you know, becoming less and less viable for, for many of these countries. So uh, let, me interject, let me interject here a second. That brings up a really big point that a lot of people have sort of missed in the discussion of hunting, anti-hunting, trophy, whatever there's... Um, is the communities that live in these lands, you know, the, the mm. areas where ecotourism and NGOs and conservation work, there is no hunting um, or it's, it's not talked about, the, the non-hunting areas. So what you're doing and what is really critical about Akashinga and what you've just told us is how are we going to protect with the hunting uh, community and sport uh whatever dying declining that dying is not a good word declining um the communities there and the incentive to protect this land and the species that mm -hmm. are there right so i mean tr tr traditionally there had been some use of, of of these hunting areas to motivate conservation uh in these areas that were set aside for hunting now without that income coming in there's nothing really to motivate conservation or convince people that looking after wilderness just for the sake of looking after it is is uh, incentive enough. And uh, Well, it's an incentive we for us in the West, but I don't think it's an incentive for the communities there if they can't find gainful employment and be involved and motivated by the land they live in. Exactly, and, and, and when it becomes no longer viable uh, economically, they, they move in, they settle the land, the, the trees get uh, harvested, the animals get killed, um, you see illegal mining, and, and quite quickly that place as a natural area is lost. And we as a, as a generation, as a species, uh, as a planet, can't afford to lose uh, the massive tracts of land, uh, whether they be for hunting or not. We can't afford to lose any more of them. So... What we had to do is look at a viable alternative uh, to hunting. We wanted to look at uh, the, the economic, economic side of it first and how could we put a similar uh, or even better amount of money into the local community than what hunting was providing. So we looked at, at uh, a very cost-effective anti-poaching model that is driven completely by the community. Now, our model is, is, is flipped. It's uh, completely reversed to everything we've worked on before where we start... Uh, our patrols in the park and we build up uh, um, um, all our forces inside the park to stop people from coming in and poaching what's in there. Now, what we've done now is gone as far away from the park as, as is practical, as far away as 50, 60 kilometres, and we start our operation there. Uh, we, we, we partner direct uh, with local traditional leaders and local uh, community stakeholders. So this is this is very different when you go into a national park. A national park is is quite often an area that has been um, 
set aside exclusively for wilderness. Uh, people living around the park are often people that have been displaced from the park. Uh, it's been their traditional homelands. Uh, now, national parks generally, and I'm going to say generally, it's not always the case, but they, they most often fall into a national system, a national system that's run from a head office, uh, patrolled by very dedicated park rangers, but park rangers that come from different parts of the country. Uh, not always uh, from from the area directly around the park. So tourists coming in, their money goes back into a centralised system and rangers coming to protect the area. They're not from the local community often. And it's the same we had in Iraq. We, we, we were contracted by uh, uh, the Ministry of Interior there as part of the um, civilian police assistance training team to recruit and deploy battalion-sized groups, uh, a mixture of Sunni and Shiite from across the country. Uh, and that was my job as the project manager for the Iraq Special Police Training Academy. We would train uh, those battalion-sized groups and they would be deployed out uh, to particular areas around the country and it was an absolute disaster because you take a group of people who are trained in all those skills, you send them out to one area and it caused immediate conflict uh, with the locals. And we're seeing the same thing happening uh, in national parks uh, around Africa. You get groups of people from uh, from other parts of the country who are brought into one area to enforce law. And there's that immediate resentment with the local community. And so what we wanted to do was build a, a conservation. We wanted to turn a conservation need, a law enforcement need, into a community project. Uh, so we spend... Um, 72 cents out of every dollar is spent directly back into the local community with this model, uh, 100% employment from the local community. Uh, there's a number of layers starting from the outside working in towards the park and then inside the park itself we have a reaction team. But before that we have a community scout program, we have a community liaison officer, we have an informant network, we have community projects that are going on and the very last stage of that is the reactive stage that's inside the park itself. Uh, the project triple gears, the bottom line triple gears in the employment of women, almost predominantly 100% women. Uh, the only males uh, we use for the project are external instructors that are brought in, uh, in a, uh, they're just uh, um, attached to the project uh, temporarily. But the idea is that these entire parks are managed completely by women and uh, protected completely by women. Now, let, let me just clear up something. These are not are they parks or are they like private reserves? Because These we're talking about areas. previous. So it's a community area that previously had, oh, the the hunting quotas or the hunting blocks. And exactly. Now, so they're, they're owned by the community. So when we partner with someone, we're partnering direct with the local community. We're not partnering with a centralized system. We're partnering with senior government. We're going direct to the local stakeholders. And when we have benefits, those benefits go directly back into the community. They go nowhere else. So this uh, now, is a very different uh, model for you uh, and, and the IA, IAPF teams working. As you said, you've com rather completely flipped. It's similar um, principle and premise, but now you're working with the communities, which you and I had uh, deep conversations on this about. Uh, previously in that, you know, sometimes when we are working on the law enforcement side and we come in, as you said, like in Iraq, we end up making enemies of the very people we're trying to work with. And then there's the whole female uh, contingent. So this is a big, this is a big change. And how do you think it relates to uh, the new government in Zimbabwe? I uh, am very optimistic about where things are going in Zimbabwe. Uh, we've had very good support uh, so far uh, from the government. And uh, I'm not sure if the, the listeners are aware that there's a break between, you know, it's, it's been, a, what, a week since we spoke uh, and did the first section of this segment of this interview. But in that second, you know, between that first interview that we've done for the first uh, what, 15, 20 minutes, uh there's a new president that's been announced. Now, that president, uh, Emerson Manangagwa, is actually, uh, he knows about the project and he's coming up to see the project and meet with the girls uh, at some stage in the next week, So, as well as the Minister for, for Environment. So the support that we're seeing definitely from Harare uh, very much in favour of this project and very much in favour of 
uh, what is an innovative model for, for managing uh, large tracts of, of land across the, the, the country that at the moment are seeing diminishing um, uh, amounts, of, amounts of investment. So, yeah. look, we, we, look my, my job is not to pick a fight with the hunting industry and say, hey, look, it's a, it's a shit pastime, let's get over it. it. It's to say, look, it's existed before, it still exists now, but it's diminishing. We need to do something with this land. Whether you're for or against hunting, it doesn't matter. Let's 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 not fight. Let's look at a positive alternative. So that's what we're doing. We're trying to turn a uh, uh, an increasingly uh, dire situation into something good, and that's what these girls do. Now, that the, the, the real, I mean, the bit that makes it work is the employment of women exclusively, and that's uh, we, our, all our research uh, tells us that these women are spending uh, up to three times more than their male counterparts on their family. Uh, an immediate community uh, out of their monthly salaries. Now that's 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 a big factor. When that money is being spent on children, and that money is being spent on healthcare, it's being spent on uh, school fees. It means kids are staying in school longer. It means they're being fed better. Uh, the women who uh, are going back to their uh, back to their communities uh, have a level of empowerment now. All the women that we've recruited, they're all victims of domestic violence. They, they're orphans. They are uh, victims of, of sexual assault. They're abandoned wives. They're single mothers. So we, we've looked at uh, you know, the most marginalised women uh, that that were in these communities, and we, we this is not a handout. Uh, this is an opportunity, and these women have fought very hard uh, for the positions that they've they've acquired now. Uh, and not all the women got through. You know, there was a, a very rigorous selection process, uh, and what was left at the end formed uh, what was the the, the first Akashinga unit uh, of 16 women. Uh, now, uh, a month uh, after the the first group has graduated in front of 2,000 p- people in their local community, we've em- employed the next group now. Uh, so we've got 35 uh, women that are employed, uh, and when they have finished, we'll get the next group. And one thing we have is an endless amount of land that uh, this model can roll out into. Uh, There's so much land that's available that is just sitting there uh, for um, something to come in there and and, and replace this um, economic investment into the local community. This is amazing. This is incredible because, as you said when we first started today, um, 20, 20, 20, how many millions of hectares? 20 million uh, acres in uh, 20 million acres. So this is bringing in a whole other side of what I'm going to call conservation critical update OSX. We have to change our our models and our mindset and start thinking out of the box for a changing world. And um, so looking at this uh, in, in the terms of what you're accomplishing is amazing because it will not only roll out across Zimbabwe and all this available land that needs protection and needs a presence, but it can roll out elsewhere across the continent. So um, we need to take just a little break here, and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about this process and the women themselves. So stick with us, my guest Damien Mander, and we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Damian Mander, with the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. Damian's been on this program several times before, and uh, go back and listen to his episodes, because what we're talking about today is a shift, a really huge shift in how conservation needs to work and take action for the future. So, in as Damien said in our last section, the first part of this recording was done just as Zimbabwe was, Mugabe had resigned and a new government came in. Now we're about a week later, so you can see how quickly things are changing in terms of Zimbabwe and that we've got to find ways to protect the land that previously were, was hunting uh, blocks and community land versus national parks. So we've been talking about the Akashinga project and Damien's filled, filled us in and it's women based. So Damien, what are you finding um, besides what we talked about in the, in the previous section here, the difference between working with women from the communities versus men and rangers and national parks? We're talking community land and a whole different uh, bailiwick here. Probably to, to talk about what we're doing now, I'll give you a little bit of context of uh, my history in, in the matter. You know, I come from a, a, you know, some units in the military where we were staunchly opposed to having, you know, women, women were not allowed in them, but despite all the progression uh, in society uh, and women trying to get into them or, or society trying to open those units up to women, we as a unit would uh, fight to make the uh, entry standards harder and harder. Uh, so it would remain a, a man's unit and for no other reason than they were our units and we wanted to keep it that way. And, you know, so this project is not the evolution of, of women to be able to do the job uh, that, that, that men can do. This is the evolution of us to acknowledge that they could have done it the whole time anyway. Um, I mean, I've been involved... including women in a role, not just militarised, but in a role that puts them in their landscape and puts their families in, in the landscape. It acknowledges the fact that they are a part of this whole system. Yeah. So, we, I mean, we, I mean I've been involved with the training of thousands of, of men in both paramilitary, special operations and, and ranger environments. Uh, I started this project after going to a fundraiser in New York uh, for the Black Mumbers and we just saw money getting thrown at this unit and I thought, you know, this is a, a unit of women that are doing a, a great job there. But on the other side of the, the, the Kruger border there, we're running a, we're running a very strategic project uh, which was the the entire eastern flank of Kruger National Park's intensive protection zone and 35% of the world's remaining rhino. And we had a very strategic project and finding it very hard to raise money. And I was seeing this, this project with all the women that was raising a bucket of money. I thought, well, maybe we can do this less strategic, more PR-focused project and use that to put into other projects that we're doing, the money, some of the money that we raise uh, through, through the PR. And... That sentiment lasted about half of the first day. And uh, <laughs> about lunchtime, uh, we were filming a documentary uh, with a, 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 another Aussie down a, from, he's based in Cape Town with a, an agency down there, Adrian Stern, a good mate of mine. And we looked at each other and we said, this is, this is something different, something very, very different and something I'd never seen before because I'd never opened my eyes to it. But we saw... Uh, much less aggression with these women. Uh, we saw this fierce determination uh, and these women in a way that I've never seen with men. We I'd done selection some years earlier for over 180 men in Victoria Falls and at the end of the first day there were three of them left. Now we ran a 72-hour selection uh, for the women that we had and after 72 hours only three had pulled off and it was extremely difficult and they, I don't know, there was just a toughness about them and they didn't complain, they didn't whinge or moan, they just went out and got the job done. They didn't grunt, 
they didn't squeal, they didn't scream. Uh, barely any, you know, there was no major injuries or anything. They just had a job and they went out and got it done. And I just, it just really made me realise the potential of this program. And that's when we, we matched it with uh, the the need to replace hunting. Uh, so we... we we had to we had to take a step back there after that first day and figure out how to scale this and give this program its its full potential. Uh, but everything we've seen to date uh, indicates that not only can women do this job, but from what I've seen, they can do it a lot better. Uh, there's you know out of all the women we've interviewed, none of them drink, none of them smoke. There's no sense of entitlement. Uh, uh, there's no ego, nepotism's gone. Uh, this patronage thing that we often see uh, in male society in Africa is it, 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 and now I'm not having a go at all the male rangers that are out there doing a brilliant job okay what I'm saying here is for this whole time the, that the conservation industry has been involved with conservation we've only been looking at half the potential candidates it's quite an amazing acknowledgement because Having worked in Africa for 30 years and started a lot with women's groups, and then when I would leave a woman's group, the men would say, well, how come you're not talking to us? And I said, I will, I will, but the women have a whole different sense of quiet power. They, As you would said earlier, they do run the family unit when the men are gone. And with the male model of rangers being gone six to nine months at a time, who's left taking care of business on on the home front? It's the women and the children. So they have a whole different sense of what needs to happen. And from what I'm hearing you say is they bring that that uh, capability and that knowledge and that determination of we've got to get it done no matter what to your project. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, mothers, women, fierce protectors. And, uh, I mean, God help any man that tries to stand between a mother and a, and a, and a child, you know, and they, they seem to be carrying that same sentiment across into the protection you know, or the, their daily duties in protecting wilderness. Well, it makes absolute uh, sense. So I let, can't go ahead. Yeah, I can't. I can't truly explain. Uh, you know what we've seen with these women. It's just something I suppose you've got to see for yourself. But it's uh, and maybe I'll just have to wait till the documentary comes out or, or get on a plane and come over and have a look. But it is something that uh, you know it's just shifted my perspective in in every way possible. I'm I'm thrilled to hear that because it's it's a growth in you personally. It's a the next logical step in terms of shifting conservation and shifting conservation organizations and shifting um, our human mentality that this is a world of a lot of different kinds of people and a proportion of them are men and a proportion of them are women and we need everybody at this point in time yeah. to uh, yeah. you know, to shift our perspective into protecting our world not just the species but if we want to continue on and these communities continue on whether it's in Zimbabwe or here in Colorado we have to include everybody and find a, a place help everybody find a place in this rapidly changed world so um, what were some what was were some of the personal experiences you went through in realizing what happened here? I mean, the first thing you've got to eat is humble pie because, I mean, you go back, uh, you know, back as far as far back as my military days when, you know, we fought against this type of change for no other reason than we just wanted to remain the boys' club. And uh, I think just, you know, opening up your perspective. Um, I mean, I... I, I urge anybody involved with conservation or law enforcement conservation to come out and have a have a look at, uh, at the way these women are performing and uh, it is much less aggression which we need in a in a in a community environment where we're trying to run a, a, a community program we don't want antagonism we don't want uh, big offenses and more guns and helicopters and sensors in the ground and and all that stuff we want uh, as a as a 
as a primary role, we want people that can engage with the local community. We want to know when there's human wildlife conflict. We want to know when someone's not happy. Uh, we want to know when there's a poacher moving through the area or if someone's involved with bushmeat poaching. We want to know if someone's kid's sick or if someone else's kid can't go to school. I mean, we arrested a poacher uh, a few weeks ago. His, his wife has now been offered a, a, a position in the next intake. Um, you know, it's... it's uh, it really is a shift from de-escalating and the warring up of militarized conservation into more of a compassionate coexistence? It, it, it is, uh, for the most part, now at the very last line of defence. Uh, we still have women that have received exactly the same training and are expected to carry out exactly the same function as the most highly trained ranger forces that I've worked with. And that's, uh, that is still the reality of conservation on the front lines. We are uh, these women are protecting uh, the communal areas, uh, which also act as a buffer uh, between the people and one of the largest elephant populations left on the continent in the Lower Zambezi Valley. There, so we still have, uh, and that you know that that population has dropped by forty percent, uh, according to the the, the Great Elephant uh, Census run by Vulcan. It's dropped forty percent in the last decade or so. So we still and the. Uh, to our uh, our west, the Sabungwe region lost seventy five percent of their elephant in a similar time frame. So we still have a problem there, and we still have a high threat level, and we need to be able to respond to that. But what I don't want to do is uh, is is outsource that last line of defence to anyone else other than these women, because uh, that's that's it's their entitlement to be able to carry out the full function here, and uh, that's exactly what they're doing. That's excellent, and you just had a a great article. Um, today in the uh, IOL news, and uh, it's an excellent article. That independent, yeah. Yeah, independent yeah. Uh, news, and it's an excellent article. So um, that's at www.iol.co.za. I uh, urge our listeners to read that because not only are there some great images by uh, Adrian Stern, uh Damien's friend there that's working on the documentary, but it gives some background about what's going on and when you see these women and uh, they're fantastic photographs um, but when you see what's going on and read this article, it it truly is a shift in what's going on over here in Zimbabwe and we really need this shift. So, um, you said something earlier, Damien, about including the women and uh, there's a point here in the article that uh, many current western solutions to conserve wilderness areas are continue to struggle across the African continent hampered by ongoing corruption, nepotism and lack of partnership. So we talked about that f- for a little bit but you bring in the growing body of evidence of working with women and the change it made in you. So where do you see this going next? You have a big fundraiser coming up, and listeners, it's the end of the year giving time, and uh, Damien and IAPF want to increase this project and roll out the next uh, training program. So tell us a little bit about where the funding goes and what it takes to roll out another team of women. Okay, thanks. So as I, as I mentioned, 72% of the funding of every dollar that we spend in our operational costs goes directly back into the local community. That's through uh, employment uh, and the use of goods and services. Uh, what it, it costs us, okay, so let me just, let me drag out the figures here. It costs us uh, $1.41 per year to protect each hectare. Now, we did an assessment of 11 rhino reserves in South Africa. I'm not going to say which ones. And it works out that they are spending around between $18 and $20 per hectare per year. So this is a very economic model. It's not only an economic model in the amount of money that's spent. It's economic in the way that most of that goes back into the local community. Now, to employ uh, a four-women team per year costs us around $24,000. Uh, the, the first area that we have deployed into is an area called Fundundu. Uh, there, the, the, um, there are 20, initially 21 women uh, for that area, uh, which is costing around $124,000 uh, per annum. The next group um, 
for the next area. Niadzo is nine women for that area. Then Maquich is 53 women uh, for that area at $312,000 uh, per annum. So it's, it's, uh, it's a very scalable model. It's something that is not a law enforcement uh, program. Uh, it's a community program first. Okay, and it's not an anti-poaching unit. It's it's a model that can be replicated uh, pretty much anywhere. Anywhere there's anywhere there's marginalised women living in rural society uh, alongside a wilderness area uh, that hunting has once uh, uh, been a source of income for. This program can roll out into, and I mean, it doesn't have to be a hunting area. Um, at the moment, we're sitting with a backlog of of areas uh, and local stakeholders who want to roll this program out. So our job now is to is to take this uh, to the global market and try and raise the bucks to replicate this program. And it comes down to one very simple thing uh, in, in, in the way we market this program. Can we convince enough people around the world that empowering women to look after these areas, is that more powerful than trophy hunting? And that's up to people, up to the people around the world to decide. And if they think it is, then they need to support this program. All the partners that we take on with this program, our, you know, we can't do all this ourselves. We we are building uh, uh, um, the systems uh, around this uh, that can be uh, parted uh, or franchised out to people as we meet the same standards across the areas that we branch out into. Other organisations can come and partner and also manage the same area, uh, different areas with the same model. And I'm not going to say who, uh, but we have some of the best minds on the continent uh, who have been working to operationalize this. So I have a little sticky question. You're, you can answer it or not. Are you Please. working with the hunty, hunting communities um, like we, Dallas Safari Club, Safari Club International? Are you um, going to take on presenting this to that staunch argument of trophy hunting has a place in conservation? To, for this to roll out, we ha we have to partner with hunters because it is hunters that control these areas in most cases. And for for uh, for what it's worth, a lot of these areas have been managed by single stakeholders uh, directly with the local community for long periods of time. And uh, you know, had hunting remained viable for many of these areas, they probably would have been continued to be managed by those stakeholders. So we don't want to get rid of that. Uh, historical and intellectual uh, knowledge that it's taken to make these places and these communities uh, function over over some in some cases decades. We want to we want to embrace that and we want to use that knowledge. And there hasn't been one hunter that I've spoken to that has turned around to me and said, "Listen, if if you can find a way to bring the same amount or even better amount of income into this area." And help support the local community, and you don't have to shoot something that they wouldn't. They wouldn't be a part of it. So hunters, uh, definitely the hunters I've been speaking to, and there's been quite a lot of them, uh, are embracing this model because uh, you, you know you see it too, particularly with um, you know some of the some of the older hunters that have been going around for a while. And I suppose um, you know at some stage they they maybe just don't want to hunt anymore. Uh, they still understand that that uh, it takes an income to, to protect these areas. But um, a lot of these areas are just, they're not photographic areas. They're not areas that have airports next to them or, or main highways heading up to their doorstep. But they are equally as important from a biodiversity standpoint and they deserve as much, if not more, uh, attention from a global community than the national parks do. National parks have attention. They're on the map. They have the support in most cases. Uh, so th this model is protecting areas that need support, not areas that have it. That's a very critical point, and I hope our listeners heard that. So this is not so much about hunting, continuing, or stopping. And this is not a discussion today about the merits of hunting for conservation. What we are ha discussing is the need to conserve and protect the biodiversity of these areas that do not draw tourists. There are people living there. There's wildlife, diverse wildlife, a lot of biodiversity there. There's a lot of um, people that are interested in, in seeing other places like the parks, but security and the communities that live in these off-the-map places, as Damien just said, need support as much as, if not more, than 
the parks that we're all focused on. So this is a huge step in reaching toward let's let's say E.O. Wilson's Half Earth. Um, Half Earth, exactly. Uh, so and yeah, women got, and sorry. women are a big part of that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I mean, we currently protect 17% of the Earth's surface, according to to, to his book. That won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, Half Earth, uh, and. As the book, the book title says, we need to conserve the other 33% to bring us up to that half factor. And that's this, this project is about helping to protect uh, more biodiversity and about not losing any more. And right. I think that's the important part of this, not losing any more. That's the most immediate and direct thing we can do in the situation we have in this, this world is stand up for what we are already holding on to and, and refuse to take another backward step at this, this critical juncture uh, in, in, in the course of our evolution. That's that's what we need. You just nailed it right there, Damien. So I hope our listeners heard that. So just to reiterate, uh, please visit iapf.org, Damien Mander, Facebook, their website. Learn more about the Akashinga Project, and please donate. You can donate through Wild Eyes Foundation. Wild Eyes is supporting uh, the next stage of the Akashinga Project. And uh, you can donate through iapf.org direct. And uh, we need to raise money because this is critical. This is mission critical for moving forward on uh, planet Earth, not just for protecting wildlife, but for working with the people and uh, so that we have a place as well in our future. Um, Damien, I have one more question from you. In uh, Previously and in this article, you had mentioned that working with the women uh, de-escalates tension. Uh, just give us a little bit about that in the difference of working with men and women in terms of confrontation or conflict, that uh, the women that are working here have a tendency to de-escalate a situation. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, naturally a woman, uh, less confrontational, uh, and which in a, in a case of, of law enforcement here, I think that's, you know, particularly with the community, uh, it's not just law enforcement, it's about building those relations. And it, it, I mean, I can't put my finger on it. I don't know, I've been working in this game for a long, long time, both uh, both in Africa and, and, and the Middle East and also Australia. And... Uh, you know, I've, I've seen I've seen it from just about every angle, and uh, you know these women just I mean they they've just got a different way of doing things, and that is a is a much I don't know it's a much they, I mean don't get me wrong, you don't want to piss these women off I've seen them pissed off and I don't want to get caught in the middle of that and there's been I mean these girls have been making a lot of arrests and uh, sorry to call them girls I know that's not the right thing but I'm Australian and sometimes that just it's just natural guys and girls. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've seen these girls uh, making arrests and I've seen them being confronted with men, uh, by men uh, who are very antagonistic. And when they have to lift, uh, you know, lift their game and, and uh, their tension level, uh, they get the job done. Uh, just a lot. I mean, in November alone, they made eight arrests. One of those was uh, uh, a poacher who's been involved with distributing cyanide. Cyanide that the test came back to high concentrate, six times stronger than what they use in mining. Now... For those involved with conservation, and actually the whole world heard about it a few years ago, the biggest elephant massacre in, in recorded history. 300 elephants were killed by cyanide in Zimbabwe. So this is a big problem here. And these women are not just, I mean, we're not just, uh, you know, trying to stop bushmeat poachers or, or, or people cutting down wood. They're actually going into the syndicates and they're targeting the guys that are involved with, with uh, ivory poaching. And, you know, so far they've all been men. This is, um, I, I, I barely have words because this is so exciting. I've been waiting practically 30 years of my conservation life to see this step being taken. So I personally thank you, thank you for coming around to this because we need more people like you, more women like uh, the Akashinga Project. And listeners, please, please donate to this project because this is our future. And unfortunately, we are out of time today, Damien. And uh, so thanks for taking this brief break out of your uh, evening. And you've got a lot of work to do. So thanks so much for joining us today. Ali, thank you so much. It uh, means a lot to hear your kind words and support. And uh, thank you very much. I look forward to bringing updates to, to the listeners and, uh, and growing the program as far as it needs to go. Great. And hopefully I'll see you sometime 
in the, the near future because I think you're headed to the U.S. So we'll talk a bit more about that and we're going to have some future conversations and keep updated on what's going on. So in the meantime, folks, step out into our wild world and uh, do whatever you can, wherever you can, to make a difference because all of us are needed. So that's it for today, Our Wild World, Ellie Weiss and my guest, Damian Mander. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.